for anyone who doesn't know, this is Eli Wild. I'm really excited to have you on today for really two different reasons. Number one, you've been extremely pivotal for my growth in life and like the opportunities I have today is it's hugely thanks to you, man. You've come to me and a part of my life, I definitely needed that help and you've opened doors for me. You've coached me. You've been there for me as a friend as well through many years now. I don't know. How, how many years are we on? It feels like much longer than it is. I guess about three, you know, three. three years. Yeah. Three years now. Yeah. yeah. Three going on four. So that's number one. So I'm really excited to have you because of that. But then two, I'm just excited to have you because of what you've done in life and accomplished. So obviously, I mean, most people know that I've seen your name. You've been the number one top performing rep for Tony Robbins. Um, obviously still hold a close connection to the end of this day. You also have your own mastermind where you want do help out with sales reps. And I've been part of that sales coaching myself. And it's a good reason why I'm one of the top performers in this industry. And then two, obviously you have your own mastermind that you're helping business owners with in terms of growing their sales process. And if you want to talk more about that, I'm happy to as well. Um, but the funny thing about you, man, is I've hung out with you for three years now. Mm -hmm. Our first interaction, I think, was um, you invited me to come to Miami. And you're the reason I moved to Miami, actually, because I stayed in your place. It's like, yeah. wow, this place is gorgeous. He had a, a beautiful condo right on the water, like double four ceilings. And I got my place, like literally the building next door. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we started hanging out a lot more of that because we're just neighbors. But point being, throughout the years, you always have like a new story to tell me, like a new adventure, a new life lesson. I've talked to you for on the phone and in person thousands and thousands and thousands of hours at this point. And I've still learned something new every time I talk to you, mm -hmm. which is, I, I can't say that about anybody. Um, so because of that, I wanted to bring you here. And I know you have a lot to share on sales and all that, but like there's so many podcasts out there already. And if anyone wants to learn more, they should just only buy your stuff. But um, what I think you could also really share, man, is just life experiences, mm -hmm. mental paradigms. You've obviously become wild successful um, and not just this industry, but actually multiple different industries, like such as modeling in the past. And I've seen you in terms of bodybuilding, like best physique I've personally seen in my network. So there's so many things you've done, man, and just done them at the highest caliber. I wanted to bring you on and just showcase to that world and share you for the people that don't know you and give them the opportunity to learn from you. Awesome, man. Yeah. Rock and roll. I'm down. Yeah, man. Well, um, well that said, uh, there's, there's so much I want to get into, man. I definitely have some questions I want to ask you, but something I still don't know to this day is like, where was your start? Like, where did Eli actually go out in the world and start and go out this path? I know I heard you go to LA before, but I don't know yeah. if there was a younger start before that. So I'm definitely curious to hear like where the path began. Man, you know, it's uh, so much to unpack there. I'll give you kind of the, the cliff notes, but you know, I grew up in Maryland, really small town. Um, when I was when I was two, I don't remember obviously, but my dad got put in a wheelchair um, in a car accident, and um, he's he's an interesting guy. You know, one of those charismatic guys, kind of takes all the energy in the room, and uh, definitely an ego and all of that. But but a good man, and um, he was always kind of the tough guy, covered in tattoos, construction worker guy, and now he can't walk anymore. And um, obviously, a lot of anger in the home. Things are really bad. We're uh, pretty much lived in an all minority neighborhood, lived in a duplex house, meaning that we lived in one side of the house and another, a black family moved into the other side. And my dad, definitely somebody that didn't like black people or and we were in an all black neighborhood, but a black kid taught me how to ride a bike, throw a punch, all of that. My dad was just drunk a lot and um, really angry. Things got so bad when I was around five or six, my mom just took me and we left. 
she didn't want me to grow up without a father. So we kind of just bounced around. My mom worked places like McDonald's and fast food restaurants. And um, I was a really weird kid um, in those, those bad environments too. I saw a lot of things I shouldn't have had a lot of like weird abuse things happen to me, like sexual abuse stuff. So I was just really weird kid that I remember when I was in fourth grade, they put me in classes for mentally handicapped kids because I just didn't talk, um, put me on Ritalin, all that stuff. And I just kind of zoned out for years and I hated it and um, had no friends up until uh, like probably my second year of high school. And, you know, just being a kid was really rough, but I, I fought a lot and spent a lot of time alone. And I remember, you know, getting into the gym, working out more, that really helped me kind of, you get in touch with your body and it gives you something to work towards. And my dad, um, after he got put in a wheelchair, he won like 160 trophies and medals for bench press and bodybuilding competitions while in a wheelchair and drinking like a case of beer a day. Really? So he's a savage guy and, um, you know, a tough guy. And when you're young, you know, for a lot of boys, they want to be like their dad. And I did as well. And he was kind of my, my hero at that point. By the time I was 16, though, I, I bench pressed more than he ever had. And getting into sport, I didn't play any sports my freshman year of high school. My sophomore year, my mom thought it was important that I, that I do. And I did. And then I had like friends for the first time. And that was really cool. And I think also like in girls, that kind of makes you, it forces you not to be weird. Because you're like, I need to like, whatever this weirdness is, your ego takes over and says, I need to figure this shit out. And so um, I had friends for the first time and, and things weren't great for us by any means, but uh, my junior year, it was beginning of my junior year. I'm like, things are going pretty well, but we're in a really bad spot financially. And my mom pretty much took one of our last dollars and bought a lottery ticket and won 7 million bucks. So that was pretty cool. But, uh, you know, the interesting thing was after she told me, um, it was very emotional, very emotional day. And there's a whole whole story with it, but I knew for about a week or so, and I didn't tell anybody, I didn't tell any of my friends or anything. And I knew that everybody's perception of me would change because of this thing that had nothing to do with me. And, you know, there was some false confidence that came with that. But, you know, I just, I was really curious as to how that would manifest in my life and, and the freedom and the attention and all of that and false attention, false praise, false friends. And it's weird too, that somebody, I knew people would want to befriend me or talk to me about this thing that had nothing to do with me, but, and, and it's not like they're, if they're around me, they're going to get money or get anything, but there's a, a term in sport called berging um, from psychology of sport, B-I-R-G, binging and reflected glory. And after a team could be a shitty football team or basketball team, wins the Super Bowl or whatever, then everybody wants to wear that. Everybody wants to wear the hat and the shirt and all of that because they want to be a part of something. And, you know, I started to think really deeply about, you know, creating that. And then there's those kids in high school. And I, I was really fortunate to be able to, whether it was in high school, towards the end of my high school, you know, whatever you call it, education, or in college where I got to go there, or when I moved to LA or whatever, I was never the guy that could get into all the clubs and do all the thing, but I always, for some reason, met those people right away, became very close with them. So whether it was like hanging out at parties with every celebrity you can imagine that, you know, just like you name it from Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio, like the big ones, like I was always there getting invited to these things and, you know, like the most exclusive stuff. 
And, you know, a lot of it has been my capacity to, to understand myself and relationship. And, you know, I could try to be that guy. And now it's like, you know, with acting and all that, I can, I can, you know, go to the door and be that guy and talk loud and, ah, you know, do that thing, but it's not my thing. And so also knowing um, human, human beings really well, where I can fit in, where I can create something that's an alliance, that's not combative. Um, and, and just understand relationships really well has been, has been kind of my thing. And so, you know, there's, there's some of my story there, but part of how I got into this whole speaking thing and all of that, I, I, after my mom won the money, I didn't plan on going to college, but I had a, like a Marine pen pal. I was going to be a Marine because we were always really broke. And I was like, this is my way out, become a Marine, love the discipline, the working out, all that stuff. And, um, she wins this money. She's like, well, you know, you should go to school. And I didn't plan on it. So I ended up going to a school in West Virginia with a buddy of mine last minute. And it was like the worst experience ever. Um, right before I, I go to the school, it's called Potomac State. It's a branch school at WVU. For the kids that can't get into West Virginia University, and you need like a 2.0 you know, GPA and like basically a three on your SATs out of like eight, 1600. It's like, you could be retarded and, and get into WVU. Well, my buddy didn't get in and he was going to play baseball. And so we go to this, this feeder school and it's in Kaiser, West Virginia, which is right down from Luke, which is the most pollutant paper mill in America. And if you've never smelled a paper mill, it is like ass on steroids. It is the most disgusting thing. Worse than and a cow so farm. Um, oh, man. it's like it's worse than a slaughter farm oh, times wow. a thousand it's like chemicals and death and just it's just it's just terrible it just it, it like it just gags you and so i we we go into this the school but right before my my buddy that was going to be my my roommate uh, his name's matt he had a going away party and like it was like our whole town was there like 500 people Right before this party, the girl that I had been dating for about two two years or so um, had started dating another friend of mine that went to a different school, and he was like a childhood friend of mine named Matt Lister. And I was really upset about it and drunk. So as soon as I saw him, I hit him, and he was there with his older brother's friends that had just come home from all the branches of the military, Navy, Army, Marines, and these guys were huge and big. And they're like, "Hey, uh, you're way bigger than him." That's our boy. If you hit him again, we're going to beat you up. And it's like, oh, okay, you know, it's all good. We talk some more. I hit him again. They all grabbed me, pulled me up behind a truck, and they just beat me and kicked me. Like they, they got, like kicked me here. And my, this was cut all the way down. And there was like meat hanging over my eye. Oh. My mom thought, my mom, when she saw me, she thought I was blind, broke all my ribs, like just destroyed my nose. It was like hanging off my face. They basically just kicked me for a long time. The first guy that jumped on me, though, uh, like I grabbed him. And I bit his stomach and I bit a chunk out of his stomach. And I was like into it. And then they just knocked me unconscious. And I was like laying in a pool of blood and I go home and uh, my mom sees me and she's just crying hysterically for hours. And uh, fast forward two weeks, I go to this university, this feeder school, and it's 6.8 guys to every one girl. And most of the girls there dip tobacco like this, oh, like disgusting gosh. girls. And it was just a disgusting experience. And I ended up being there and pretty, I was pretty much beat up for the entire semester. The whole first semester I was there laid around and that was my 
intro to college, people saying, hey, what happened to your face for about three months? And uh, that girl that I had been seeing, we started talking on the phone again. She went to school in Delaware, big school. And we both decided to quit school, get back together, go to community college back in our hometown. And from there, it was just terrible. Like we got back together, but we're fighting a lot and stuff. Um, we'd break up. She'd start dating somebody else. I'd beat up the person really bad. Um, and that went on for like a year. And wow. then uh, eventually I needed to get out of there and I got accepted to University of Maryland, College Park. And it, I wanted to go to a big school with D1 sports and all of that. And I just, because I didn't plan on going to school, I never took the college prep courses. I always felt out of place and, you know, I ended up joining this cheesy fraternity, didn't like it. And I was like, trying to do all these things. I never went to class, only took tests and I just felt really lost. And then my last, um, my last semester at school, I got a job in downtown DC working as a bouncer and a bar back. And there was a girl that would come in um, that every guy was obsessed with. She like danced for the Redskins. She was a model and she was the youngest person to ever work in the White House. She was special assistant to the secretary of, secretary of education for Bill Clinton, not Monica Lewinsky, people always ask, uh, but this really amazing girl. And she um, really changed my life. She started something called MLW, Maryland Leadership Workshops, which teaches abused kids how to express themselves through art and poetry and how to communicate. And she said a lot of things to me. And we had these really powerful conversations that, that shaped me. And for example, one day we're talking and I'm telling her a story. And at the end of my story, there's silence. She goes, Eli, I couldn't follow your story. I'm just counting the amount of ums, likes, and you knows. Um, 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 like, 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 you know, you know, you know, you know, you know. She said, you sound like an idiot. You're better than that. You got to clean this up. After I picked my heart up off the floor, I said, I'm fixing this. And she said some things to me like that. We had a lot of conversations like that, where because she was older than me, about five years older than me, I saw her almost as a mentor. And she had done so much in her life and was just so amazing. And we dated for about four years. And she um, she changed, completely changed my life. I she was amazing, but I broke up with her because I I was when I moved to Colorado. So after after the Clinton administration was over, I was working in D.C. How old are you at this point? I was 21 okay. in D, in D.C. And she, after Clinton administration, she moved to L.A. to go to UCLA Law School, and I was still working in D.C. And then she left. A lot of my friends had left because at this point they were all done with done with college and were looking for jobs. A bunch of them moved to Colorado and I was just going to stay there, but I would bars close at 4 a.m. in D.C. And I'd get done cleaning the place. We get out of there at five. We have a couple beers with the staff and I get home. The sun's up and I sleep. And I was one night after maybe three, four months of this, I'm just thinking like this is my life. And I was making about 300 bucks a night, which for me, that was a lot of money. I was just I'm the richest man in the world making 300 bucks a night. And I drive home and pull down the shades and, and try to get some sleep, sleep through the day. And I was like, this is, this is kind of a shitty life. And I had lived in a house with maybe five, six other guys that all kind of had the same, same rhythm. House smells like weed and beer all the time. It's one of those houses. And I get home this one night, Erica's been gone about two weeks. I'm done with everything and I'm just living. And it kind of sits in like, this is my new normal. And I can't sleep. I'm just thinking about so many things one night and I watched one of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption. And I'm watching that movie 
And there's a very symbolistic scene where Red, Morgan Freeman's character, is in a graveyard raking up leaves. And Tim, Andy, you know, uh, Tim Robbins, Andy Dufresne has escaped from prison. And he's talking about how much he misses his friend. But then he says this line, but some birds just can't be caged. Their feathers are just too bright. And I'm like, this is one of those things. I start crying and I get this idea. I pack, I write a note to my roommates. I say, keep all my stuff, keep my deposit. Um, and I packed up what I could. I call my mom and I say, mom, I got this idea. My friend, I, my friends have moving to Colorado. I just decided I'm going to move and I've packed up my car already. I'm leaving. I've got just enough room in my car for you. I'm coming home. I'm picking you up and we're driving to Colorado together. And that was really cool beginning to start my life there. But I was, I was 20, I was, I think it was, I was 21 going on 22 at the time. And I, uh, I'm living, you know, it's kind of that same thing. I'm, I'm living in Northern Colorado, um, Fort Collins, and I'm with a bunch of buddies and I had a girlfriend, but I had never been like the really good looking guy. Like, and, and I'm working all these places. I'm in a college town and and it was just like, I was emotionally like really healthy. And so girls just wanted to bang me all the time. Uh, I was trying to impress Erica though. So I got this job as a financial advisor and I hated it. And I was commuting from Fort Collins to Denver. It was like a, it's like a five hour commute every day. So I ended up quitting everything. I, I'm working at this, this job with this, these other dudes that hate the financial job, financial advisory job as well. And this one guy talked about how he had lived in his car for a bit. And most people are like, oh, that's a story. I'm just like, man, that's a pretty good idea. And then, you know, I, I ended up just quitting the job and said, I'm going to take a, a couple of days and just think about things and just go for a drive into the mountains. And I found this kind of little mountain town and I got this idea. I said, I'm just going to live in a tent. I want to pay rent or anything. And I'll get like these, this little job thing. And I had like some, you know, some, some kind of shitty job prospects, but they didn't pay much money. But I didn't need much because I was just going to, you know, live off, you know, live off a tent and everything. Uh, so it was a great idea in theory. And around that same time, I ended up going home to visit my mom. And I reconnect with a friend from high school named Lee Dahmer. And I've, I've still got this idea. I've not told anybody that I'm going to move into a tent, get rid of all my stuff. But there's kind of like... I'm living with my friends. So there's the rent situation. I'm kind of like messing them up by leaving. So I get this bright idea. I'm with my friend. He's got had a bad breakup and he's like suicidal. He says a couple of things when we're really drunk where I'm like, I know this dude is going to kill himself. And he's in my hometown, which is a shitty town. All of his friends are gone. He's miserable. His girlfriend's bro broken up with him. He says some just crazy things. And so we get really drunk. I wake up and I'm looking at him sleeping on my mom's couch. And I think to myself, this is going to be the last time I see my friend. And I said, and then this idea comes, I wake him up. I said, Lee, I said, here's what's about to happen. My flight takes off in a few hours to go back to Colorado, but I'm not going to take it. He says, you're not? I said, no, I'm going to drive to Colorado. He says, that's cool. How are you going to do it? I says, you're driving with me and we're taking your car. He says, what? I said, you're in a bad spot. I'm kidnapping you. And I tell him the whole plan. Um, and he's like a little bit whatever. And I take him to his house and I tell his parents the plan and I sit them down. And I take all of his stuff and I start putting it in trash bags and we load up his car and then we leave. But I said, when we move to Colorado, all of my stuff is going to be your stuff. You can have my place. You'll have to pay rent and all that, but everything I want to be yours. And I'm moving to a tent. I'm moving to a tent 
and I'm living up there. And I've been up there about two weeks. All my stuff is in the tent or in my car. And I get really, really drunk one night in Boulder. So Boulder, um, Playboy magazine used to rate all of the top party schools and they quit ranking WVU and CU. They said, we can't rank these schools anymore because they're professional party partiers. They're just, they can't, there's like, they're such crazy party schools. And Colorado is a equally good party school as West Virginia, but with like unbelievably hot girls, like super hot girls. And I met, I met like the most gorgeous girls ever there. Um, I ended up dating this one girl uh, as I was still seeing Erica. So I ended up breaking up with her and um, she was dating some dude on the Broncos, like a really famous dude. And she was like the girl at the whole university. Everybody was obsessed with. I saw her, the, the job that I got while I was working in the tent, I got this job modeling. It, did, it paid like 30 bucks an hour, which for me was, you know, and I'd work like every, you know, every weekend for like a day, but that was like all the money that I needed. And so I would do these things and I would be, I'd go to these modeling gigs and it'd be like two dudes. It'd be me and some other dude that was pretty famous. Um, Cause the, 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 the owner of the agency just liked me a lot. Gay dudes love me. And so I'm talking to this guy and we go to these events, it could be concerts or whatever. And it'd be like 80 to hundred of the hottest girl you've ever seen. And me and one other dude. And so that's pretty good. But after two weeks, I'm living in this tent and I get really drunk in Boulder one night and I'm driving my, my car with all my stuff in it back up to the tent and I'm way too drunk. And I take a turn a little bit too fast up in the mountains. And I, and you feel that everything begins to slow down as the, the back end of the car. And then you go to correct it. And then it's like, and then I remember I'm really drunk and I just said, and I just let go of the wheel because I knew it was just, it was just done. My car goes right off the edge of a cliff. So I'm up in the mountains and I'm just, I'm screaming. I'm going like probably 80 miles an hour around this turn and just right off, like in the movies. And my, the car goes off the tent, off the mountain and goes right into a river. My head smashes against the window. And now the car is like filling with water. You know, it's like an unfucking movie. Oh and I, I smash this, this thing out and it won't break. And then I just, you know, obviously I could, just like in the movies, you're just smashing stuff. So I, it's hard to break a window. And so I ended up- It's not as easy as it looks. Yeah, it's way, <laughs> they throw people out windows. People jump out of windows in movies. But it's like, if you try to jump out your window, you're going to knock yourself out. It's yeah. like, it's really hard. I mean, it's like the glass is like soundproof and like it's as thick as a wall. And so it doesn't work that way as I, as I found out as my car is submerged in water. But I ended up just taking the window down and I climb out and uh, I ended up just covered in mud and blood on the side of the road. And uh, very long story short, I ended up getting arrested. And now I've got no car. I got no stuff. I'm like, I'm all beat up. It's just, it was just a mess. So I, I'll leave things there um, for now, but I, I'll tell you this, what I had to do to get out of that situation and all of the things that happened in the next few coming months really shaped me. And then from there, I, it, so I ended up getting a DUI. I'll, I'll give you this part of the story. I get a lawyer and they, they had my sworn written testimony, my blood test, breath test, that had everything. And I spent the night in jail. And it was my second DUI. So it was mandatory jail time. So I get a lawyer and he's like, we're talking for a while. And he's like, just, he just assumed that I was going to plead guilty. He says, well, you have, they have all this stuff. And I said, no, no, no. I said, who am I going to plead, fucking plead guilty? I can, I can plead guilty on my own. Like, why do you think I'm hiring you? Yeah. And he's like, man, you're crazy. And so he postpones 
the court case over and over and over again. You're just trying to talk some sense into me. But I was like, he says, man, if you waste jury time and you take this to a trial, they're going to give you like serious time in jail. You'll spend like 60 days in jail. And he says, you don't want that. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm, you know, I got this thing. It's just going to happen for me. He's like, man, you are crazy. And the day of my actual court case, uh, he gets there early. He meets with me and he, him and his, his girlfriend have made the basement of their house into an apartment for me. They said, look, you can just do house arrest and live with us for like a month. Just plead guilty. Totally fine. It will come off your record. Just don't mess up your life. And I said, no, I appreciate you so much, but I just, I just know. And he's like, you are crazy. And so we take it to a jury case and it was November 27th. My birthday is November 12th. And I turned 23 years old, November 12th of that year. And I had a lot on my mind and I just wanted to think through things. So I decided to hike into the mountains for one day and one night without food or water and just sit and think. But it snowed like four feet that night. So I couldn't find my way out. And so one day, one night turned into three days, three nights in the dark, because the sun goes down in the wintertime at yeah, like, early. in the mountains yeah. at like 4 p.m. And it's big, huge mountains and it's fucking cold. And the sun comes up. It's like very little daylight and it's just pitch black. And there's like noises all around and like bears and shit. And you're just like, I'm freaking out. But once I found my way out, I had such a hunger for my life. And I just knew like there was just a certainty in me, like I'm going to be okay. Like I got this. And so I go there that day. And the policeman, the, the forensics person, the psychiatrist that talked to me, they, they all told their story. Um, the policeman, you know, got up there and he spoke. And I don't have to take the stand against myself, but I got up there and I spoke for about an hour, just about nonsense <laughs> and, and some things that I just talked. And the jury was hung for like over two hours and they came back and they found me not guilty, of course. But what was fascinating, everybody knew I was guilty. The judge knew I was guilty. We had talks in the pretrial where it was just the DA, my lawyer, the judge, and we kind of joked about it. Everybody knew I was guilty. Like <laughs> after the jury came back and found me not guilty, the policeman that arrested me walked across the courtroom and said, Mr. Wilhite, I think you're a great man. I think you're gonna do great things with your life. I want you to know something. I'm really happy with what happened here today. Good luck, good luck with your life. And so, I mean, obviously these people knew I was guilty. And they just, it was like everybody- Why did they just, let you go? Um, they just feel I, bad for you? You think you were young? I had a big vision of what I wanted to accomplish in my life. And so when you're telling a story, even about, so I, I did tell a story about what happened that night. I threw in some open loops and some, and some frames, but also if you look at even like the pickup community, a guy could, you know, do these, uh, as mystery used to talk about it, these DHV spikes demonstrating higher value. So when you tell stories, you know, so say you're talking to a girl, she's like, oh, you know, she's like, oh, where are you going? I'm just going over here to check out my buddy. You know, he just won the Super Bowl. And, you know, it's just like, you got this new boat. And, you know, we we're talking about our boats the other day. And so we're just, you know, we're just, you know, talk seriously, you have stuff in your story that demonstrates higher value. And so I made sure in everything I did, I demonstrated, I had value spikes of what was happening that demonstrate a value that they would connect to, to make them think that I'm an awesome angel person. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. I was talking with Cole, who we both know very well. And we, Cole and I share 
ideas, notes, programs, books, ideas, all that stuff. Cause he's, he's amazing. And I'm, we're just, we're just like students of psychology and sales and everything. And he turned me onto a book not that long ago called save the cat. It's a screenwriting um, book. And I, I don't know if you know it, but, but in, in all the old movies now they've taken out of it, but there's still what's called a save the cat scene. So you basically, you start watching a movie and you don't know who's good, bad, whatever, but you know, and that, now there's like a, you know, even if it's a big name celebrity, he could be playing a bad guy. But there's a scene where the person does something really good. It used to be like literally a save the cat scene where you have a guy, he's walking, he sees a cat that's hurt and he saves the cat and then it goes on. So now the audience knows. Yeah. Yeah. So you're basically like, oh, that's the good guy. He just did this good thing. And so, you know, with, and this could be your copy or whatever, it's like these little teeny things that, that connect people based on your values. And if you just say, hey, you got to be an integrity. I'm a really honest person. Well, that's usually what dishonest people say. Yeah. You know, people that are out of integrity talk about how good their integrity is. Otherwise, like yeah. if you're a seven foot tall black guy, you're not like, hey, I'm really tall. You're just fucking tall. Yeah. And it just is. And you don't need to communicate it that you don't have to be so explicit. But there are little things that you can do. Some of it's based on your presence, your tone, how you respond to people, pausing before People are like, when they ask you a question, taking a moment. So there's little things that we can do energetically in our communication that make people perceive you differently. But as you're talking in these stories, there's little, there's little things with words. There's little things inside of stories that will connect with people and get them to like you and respect you and want to talk to you more. And so I think just for me, when I was young, being so weird, and I always saw the cool kids, the charismatic kids, and now I'm friends with all the, the cool kids in different different pockets of the world, but I, you know, because it's that's not my natural thing, like I'm still, naturally, I'm just a weirdo, you know, and I'm like, and I own it, but I realized there was these people that were just naturally really charismatic, and I, I saw, like, what are the elements of their communication that make somebody magnetically attracted to them, and so understanding that I know how to connect to that in them and make them want to connect to me. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I want to go into the sales world with you too, and how you encompass that. But something I find really interesting that you picked up or you briefly mentioned before was the networking to other individuals of like high status. Right. So I have a lot of people that always ask me like, how do you build a network? And my answer to them is always, well, you shouldn't be focused on building a network. You should be focused on building a skill and becoming world-renowned through that. And then mm. through that, people will find you. So for example, like that's how I built my network, right? Like that's how you found me. That's how yeah. other people have found me just because of my sales skills. But you've broken that paradigm or belief I had because before you got good at sales, you were already networking like in LA and being all these people. And like you said, you were invited to these parties. So what is it about you or what is it that you feel like you're doing that's drawing that? Or is it just luck? Man, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm going to make it as concise as possible. So there's, you know, this phrase, it's almost cheesy, but everything is energy. Everything's energy. Like attracts like. And people like people who are like them or how they want to be. And so I do naturally, even with Tony, we do have similar values. Like I really do have these things. And there's an energy. Um, You know, I geek out on that book, Levels of Energy by Frederick Dodson. And there are, there's, you know, low energy, grief, shame, apathy, anger, frustration, up to courage and joy and peace. But when you look at like even a celebrity, 
um, even when they're doing low vibe stuff, the reason we're attracted to them, there's something, there's an energy that we we connect to. And there's an energy like Michael Jackson had a ton of this type of energy where he's just, it draws you in. He also obviously had some, some lower energy and later on in his career, um, I think he chose to opt out of the big seminar, the big uh, events that the concerts he was doing because he was 50 and he couldn't perform and he told the world he was going to do this thing. And I think, I think he kind of chose to die. And so, you know, it's like certain people have a certain energy and I've got a lot of like anger and I've got a lot of, you know, shame and guilt and anger in that, but I've got pockets of this energy just like these people. And so there's also some conflict in me, you know, it's like, which also when you see somebody even on film, if you look at like an Anthony Hopkins or a Denzel Washington, it's not like they have like this high energy of love and peace, like the Buddha or something like that, which can be attractive in and of itself. But what attracts us to certain movies and people is a conflict. Like this people, the, a lot of these people that are big name actors, they've got that energy, but they're kind of fucked up. And so there's like this, this energy, which makes somebody interesting. And it's more important to be interesting with your energy than it is to just be positive and, and all of that. Cause that's relatively boring. And so, you know, and the, the movies, like some of the, some people can say their favorite movie is like a comedy or something, but the movies that always get watched the most are dramas. Right. And so there's something there. And even like that shitty relationship, the thing that like, there's an emotional thing. And I think part of me has that part of me understands that. Um, and so there's an energy that, that connects me to people. Um, also, I took pretty good care of myself. So I was physically attractive in, in those, in those realms. That's pretty important to be able to take care of yourself. It does open some doors. Um, also, I didn't, I didn't pose a threat in a way because a lot of times you can have like alpha guys and they, they bump heads a lot of that too. So my energy was nice. This, that I could also, I could also bring some things to the table. I was resourceful. And I'm also in my essence. Also, I'm, uh, I'm like a supporter. Like I can lead, but it's been a learned skill. It's not my, my natural thing. And so I, I can do it, but also like when people come over my house, where like, I love like, making food for people. Like I'm just a nurturing type of person. And so I think there's a balance of energies. I think there's my understanding of energy, but when it comes to being like attractive, not just physically, but getting people attracted to you, there's a lot to it. Maintaining relationships, uh, also being an opportunist, an opportunist, like seeing that, seeing that edge where something, because in life there's just, there's endless things that you can do and the doors will open to everybody at some point in time. But for some people, the doors open wide. Sometimes there's just a crack. And the people that I see that are the most successful, they, they see these little teeny cracks. And it's like, if you think about it like ascending, say that we're all just like at a certain level financially, relationally, whatever, as we're on the rise. And you see people, it could be like a Tom Brady or somebody that's like really big or some of the big name people they're like, they just saw all these little things. And so there's a level of energy. And another word for energy is currency, which means money. So energy, relationship, there's these different areas of your life, but it's like finding these little, these little things and leveraging relationships, leveraging conversations and having enough things go wrong. And then you review what was great about that, what could have been even better. And then constantly applying, you know, what's going on here. And for me, and this is also what's helped me in sales, um, like I was really quiet kid. And then I was like, I saw really charismatic people and I could do that thing. And now I can do a seminar and I can talk all day 
But a lot of it, like with sales, is having that where people can get a sense of it and I can do that energy. Mm-hmm. But then, and what do you think? And letting people have that space. And so if I'm a really quiet or weak or passive person and I just let people talk, well, it's whatever. But if they see that I can talk all day and I've got the thing, and then I, and like I genuinely hear from you, it's a different level of relationship where they feel heard because they can feel heard from their mom or they can feel heard from a person who doesn't speak, but it's a different thing. Yeah. But now when somebody, regardless of their level, there's even Tony Robbins could see that like, I can, I can do the thing. Like I can do the thing, but also my ego, like I I'm, I've already heard my story. Like I'm sharing my story with you because it's this, this context, but I don't need to hear my own story. anymore. Like I'll, I even, so a lot of people talk and they tell their story so they can blab their story because it's all about themselves. If I tell my story on stage, I've told it thousands of times. I don't need to hear my story again. I don't need to impress anybody. I genuinely do it for, for you. And the, and, and great analogy, it's like the, the famous singer who gets famous for a bunch of songs, but then they've already played those songs. So when they do a concert, they want to play their new stuff. Or they want to do the old songs, but a new way. And it doesn't connect with the audience. And so there's a, there's a level of bringing something new, you being engaged, doing your best, but the intention and the motivation as to why you're doing what you're doing, whether it's speaking or asking for money, if it's for you, it's different. But in me, the things that I do, and I make sure part of my, my daily ethos, like what I live by, is to make sure what I'm doing serves other people in some way. So there is a forward movement through communication and people. And so as I've really thought about energy and kind of how people ascend and all of that, leveraging relationships, leveraging communication, be it at scale, like we're here, or leveraging the energy inside of other people, just like branding, they spend billions of dollars on brand. And you see that symbol, just like the, the, a swastika or a cross or an Apple symbol, it becomes branded on somebody's unconscious. And so as we become a personal brand, you can have something that has a billion impressions like Nike or whatever, and it costs billions of dollars to do that. But just like a brand, if you know, like they brand a cow and all of us have had emotions or memories or conversations, like something that that scarred us for life or healed us for life because it was one time, but it was deep. And so how do we create that? And so how do we be unique? How do we do things unexpected? How do we create these magic moments? And so for me in sales, I just started to reverse engineer. I did thousands of presentations and I would find people that were really resistant at the beginning and then they bought. And I'd say, and I'd ask them a lot of times, these companies or whatever, or be an entire company would buy the thing that I had when they were, they told me they're definitely not going to. And then within a 45 minute or an hour presentation, they changed their mind to the tune of a lot of money and a lot of their time, even more important than the money was the time they had to take off to come to the events and all that stuff. And it happened really quick. And so I said, at what point in my presentation, did you, did you know that you were going to do it? They're like, man, when you looked at me and you said that thing. When you, when you told that, when, when I looked at you and you were being challenged and how I saw you get really kind and soft and warm and how you, you generally connected, like, like you were like, man, I, I need to be around this person. Like whatever this guy does, I'm in. And it was way before the offer. And so I just started to reverse engineer a lot of these magic selling moments where associations change from pain to pleasure, from not liking to liking, from no desire to strong desire, 
like what creates that? And how do we do that? Not in decades, but in like minutes. And so that's been my fascination with what happens in communication. And so regardless of how many hours I've put into this and how long I've been around, a lot of the things that, a lot of the reasons that I'm connected to people and to the moment is because I'm still fascinated by it. I'm still genuinely curious because the, the two core emotions that I talk about, we have to transfer. And I've been saying this for years in our communication is certainty and clarity. But there's another one too, curiosity. Like I'm genuinely curious. Like why, yeah. why do you say that? And so yeah. there's a classic probing question in everybody's sales script. I'm just curious. Why, what makes you say that? And there's like, I'm, you know, okay, when you said this, how do you mean by that? Or it's like, you know, I'm, I'm gen, I genuinely, I'm genuinely like, I'm curious, like, what's going on that has you thinking of it that way? But I'm like genuinely curious. And then based on what they say, I kind of know the next chess moves of where it's going to go based on this one piece of information. And so I can, I can take a lot of data from something very small. And I've, I've got, I can kind of see the next few chess moves and I'm, and I'm playing and I'm playing, playing with that energy there. And so it's, it's fascinating to me every time. And I think that also keeps me engaged and my level of engagement gets them more engaged because I'm present. And I think being present is, is huge because it's, we, we tune out all the time. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I'm curious. So when did this, cause now we're going to the seminars and all that, right? So like to backtrack that a little bit, where did you find yourself in the realm of Tony Robbins? Like how did that conversation start where you were going to be on the team and actually start selling for him? I go to LA, I'm living in my car. I get, I reconnected with Erica, the girl that changed my life. And she didn't want nothing to do with me. And so I end up meeting these friends. I'm out one night and I go to this party and it was like, I go to this beautiful house and it's like all gay dudes. And I'm with this dude that I didn't know well. And I'm wearing like these black leather pants and like a black tank top and these glasses. I look pretty gay myself. And so this, <laughs> this guy comes up party to me. Was this? Uh, just some random like rich guy or something like, man, I've been, I've been to some houses like this, like crazy with shark tanks in the house, bigger than my apartment. We're like full on, you know, eight, nine foot sharks in the middle of somebody's house. Like there's some crazy places. And real, real quick, sorry, because before we go to that, I did want to ask you that. What is the craziest thing you've seen at one of these parties? Is it the shark tank or do you have a one up to that? And, you know, there's the pins. Hollywood the execs get up to weird stuff. <laughs> Man, there's like just weird sex stuff everywhere. Like that's that's pretty weird, like weird weird sex stuff i'll just say that i'll just say that so we'll just, that we, all, yeah, we know just, what you mean yeah yeah just, <laughs> and there's just a lot of that i mean la you know if you're in the valley it's like the porn capital of the world just just a lot of fucking and banging you know a lot yeah. of drugs a lot of drugs a lot of, a lot of darkness there you know but that's that's the whole other thing so I'm, I'm at this party and the guy keeps this guy keeps on talking to me this guy paul and everything he says you know is he's like oh me too he's like oh, you know i was in dc he's me too he's like you know, my, my, my girl, and I would say my girlfriend, my girlfriend, my girlfriend, just so he like could get that I'm not gay. But everything he said is like, me too, me too, me too. And I said, oh, she went to American University. He's like, oh, me too. And he, and he was like everything. And he says, no, what, what, and he said, when did you, when did you graduate? And he's like, this year, he's like, oh, me too. And uh, he's like, what was her name? And I told, said her name. And he was like, that was my best friend in college. So this is before Facebook and all this is like 2003, 2000, 2003. Um, and he's like, you got to connect us. So I connect us. The three of us end up becoming really good friends. 
and his name's Paul Nelson. And he was managing Tom Welling. Um, he's with a firm they manage like Jim Carrey. There's a, their entertainment firm. Right. And that movie Superman Returns came out in like 2004, 2005. Brandon Ralph got it. Um, so Tom Welling, who was Superman on Smallville, he got turned down for the role of it. And they thought he was a shoe in. And so Paul calls me. He says, I think you'd actually be great for this. Let's that. bring you in, screen yeah. test, get you in acting classes. Turns out they liked me, even though I was really insecure. And they do like on-camera classes. So imagine you're reading some words like a script, but you can't be looking at your script. I'm like looking at a camera. So even right now, like there's you, but here's the there's the camera. And so I'm there and I'm looking here and I've got to pretend that's 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 my mom, you know, or whatever. And I've got to see that thing. But as they record this, you can see the uncertainty in the eyes. If you don't know your word, and you can't just say the word certain, because sometimes you got to say, um, like you're, you're insecure or you got to start crying or something like that. And any, I mean, it picks up, I mean, it is minute. And so it was really good feedback, but it's like, it's really insecure. You're in a room sometimes looking at a playback where the camera is just, it's just your face like this. And there's a room full of people watching your face that level. So you see all your flaws in your skin, like yeah. imperfections, all that stuff. And you're just like, you're cringing inside. And I, I had this job selling dental products with the phone and I didn't like it, but there, I met some mentors there that, that were really pivotal in my success as well. And Paul was like, you got a real shot at this. And he's like, here's what you need to do. You need to quit your job. I had just gotten out of a lot of credit card debt. I was working really hard. Um, he says, you need to quit your job. You can do like this or this or this. If I had to do ever again, I would have gone, I would have gone in on it. But I was, one day I just quit going to classes. They called me like hundreds of times. Paul finally got me, sat me down. He says, look, if you don't book this, he says, I'll book you something else. He says, I never say this to anybody. Like you have a real shot. Like he says, like based on my connections, you can be a working actor. You might not be like famous or anything, but worst case scenario, you'll be a working actor. He says, it's going to take two years of hard work. Like this is going to be all the fuck you do. You'll get a job waiting tables, make a little money. You'll barely make ends meet. And you will start booking stuff. You will be like, you'll be famous. You have what it takes. And I just said, no. And so obviously I regretted that. And then I started thinking, you know, I, I had this credit card debt and everything. I paid it off. Why did you I, say no? I'm sorry. I just, I have to, I have to know that. You know, I had a lot of debt. I was trying to get my, my shit together and I was going to be responsible. I read the book, uh, rich dad, poor dad, they can go rich. And I was living by these principles. I was up at like four or five in the morning. I was in bed by like eight or nine at night. And I just, I was perfect in every way. And if I went out in West Hollywood, like people would ask to get their picture taken with me. Like I looked, I was in perfect shape, took like amazing care of myself. I measured all my food. I wrote down every thought. I journaled, I measured all my food. I wrote down everything for about two and a half years. I didn't have sex for two and a half years. I just like, all I did was this. And I wanted to make money and I wanted to focus on it, but I was really depressed. I got really depressed. Like, and I didn't talk to anybody, but you know, really doing anything and no drugs, no sex, no alcohol, nothing. And I was miserable. And I was like, man, I just can't figure out my life. And I just started to get really depressed and started reading, started reading all these books on like self-confidence. Cause I started thinking like, why didn't I go for it? Cause I saw the guy who got it and I saw the movie and I didn't think he was that, that impressive. You know what I mean? I mean, not, not that he's not impressive, but I saw other people that I had met do things in acting and book stuff. And, you know, you're kind of like, man, I, I kind of could have done that. You know, it's like, and I just, I started to have that thought, like, why, why didn't I go for it? And I found some books. I, I found like, found like a blog article on NLP just randomly one night. 
And I was reading through it and I was like, oh, it was really good. I had a buddy that, I, that I'd ride motorcycles with every once in a while. And he was just a random dude that I met at Trader Joe's named Jimmy. And I just talked to him at Trader Joe's, but we had gone for a couple of motorcycle rides and I brought it up with him and this NLP stuff. And he says, well, you got to check out Tony Robbins. I was like, who's Tony Robbins? And so I got the book and I got the audios off eBay. I got his tapes and I just was like, wow, this guy, this voice is amazing. And then I saw Tony speak, thousands of people do his thing. And he's like, if you got anything from this time, spend four days with me, I'll change your fucking life or get your fucking money back. And this guy just had this thing. So I used my rent money. I signed up for his UPW, walked on the fire and they got the idea. I remember there was about maybe 5,000 people at that event. And I connected with this dude named Brian. And this guy was a nice guy. He's like, I'm going to do all these things and work for the company. And you meet all these people like, I'm going to do all these things. And you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be on that stage next year and all these things. And you kind of know it's just bullshit. And I, and Tony said some things there too, very similar, like David, Ogden, David Goggins-esque. He's like, out of all these, he's like, you have all these people, then you have the warriors, and then you got like the supreme warriors, and then you have the one. Then you have the one. It's like this one person with such an impeccable standard who just fucking does it. And I was just like, I'm going to be the one. Like, I'm like, I'm going to make these commitments now. And I had the book, which is on my desk right now, Thinking We're Rich. Tony said some things that kind of reinitiated my mind. And on the first break that we had at the event, I go outside, I'm eating two cans of tuna out of my book bag because I didn't have money. I've met some girls and didn't want to go to eat. I was like, no, nah, I'm just eating my tuna. And I go back, you know, I'm reading the book on the break. And there's a story, the first story that's in Think and Grow Rich, which is right here. Um, it's on the chapter on desire by Edward C. Barnes. The, the story is of Edward C. Barnes, who's basically working, living in a railway like living in railway cars in Orange, New Jersey, living as a bum. And he hears about a genius who's changing the world with his ideas and his mind and his intellect, Thomas Edison. And he writes down that he's going to be partners with Thomas Edison, took him three years, became partners. And I'm rereading that story. And I wrote down, I'm going to be partners with Tony Robbins. And, you know, fast forward, you know, so I harassed the company. I called the company hundreds of times, but Tony talked about, he talked about the ultimate success formula, know what you want and keep on changing it and to change your, don't just keep on doing the same shit, keep on changing your approach. So I got, I got some phone numbers of people at Tony's event and they get harassed. Everybody wants to work for Tony. Everybody's mesmerized by Tony. I was like, knowing that, knowing just like the hot girl or the best job, all these fuckers, like, oh, they'll do anything. All this, like, how do I be unique? How do I be funny? How do I connect? And so I, very long story short, I harass the company. I go down there. They give me a script. It's like 28 pages. They say, come back in two weeks. Don't fuck up one word. Come back. I do it. I nail it. And uh, then they put me in Philly and all of that. And I, I really struggled early on, but I, I figured some things out along the way. And you know, it was a blessing. I, I, got, I wasn't the top salesperson. Because when you're starting in any sales job, you get the shitty meetings, you get the right. shitty everything. And it wasn't fair. And then finally, it, things become a little bit better. Tony Robbins' son, Jarek, and... Scott Humphrey, who's now kind of runs the company, Scott completely changed my life, but Scott, they wanted to be speakers. And so they were, they did a ride along with all the different speakers for Tony, where we would go to companies, a lot of these too. And a lot of these companies were shitty, like little real estate companies, used car lots, things like that. And we do a presentation and we try to sell people on the spot. It's the same job Tony had for Jim Rohn. I had for Tony. And so, and there was like Scott, people not even paying attention and stuff, right? Too, right? Yeah. Had to yeah. be there. Yeah. And so Scott does a ride along with all the speakers and there's these speakers that are making more money and, you know, have big numbers, but he, he sees all of them and then he sees me. 
and I'm in some difficult situations, but, and Scott said this to Tony, Scott said this to his, his sister, Tony's wife, Scott said this to everybody. It, this is what he said to Tony. He's like, he says, man, you're some good speakers, but you have this guy. He's like, you have this guy who's just fucking like, he's, this is, this guy's it. And so Tony started to hear from me. And then as I got better opportunities, um, I really shined in certain meetings and not just in my speaking ability and my closing ability and all of that. People could sense that I really cared. Like I was like acutely sensitive to what was happening in the room. And I genuinely cared about these human beings. And so my, my values weren't aligned. And then, so once I started to have opportunities, I would shine and then I kind of work my way up. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. When was so, the first time you encountered talking to Tony? How long hmm. were you into working? Man. So I worked for Tony for about two and a half years. And so I got the job in LA. Um, I was living in LA, the events in LA. And then I get the job with me in Philly, New York, Colorado, Northern California, back to New York, it, Atlanta. And now it's fast forward a couple of years. And the, cause the event is back in LA and do a psych in LA. And I'm living with Jerick at this point. And now I've got all this new confidence. And I'm thinking like the acting bug is, is coming back on. But I, so I leave the company after two and a half years. I have a crazy run of a couple of things that happened in those years. Uh, the modeling, all that stuff, end up getting really sick, all of it. Scott calls me and Scott, Scott Humphrey has now gone from just being a salesperson in the company to pretty much running it, asked me to come back. Very long story short, I was still really sick. Uh, they wanted to help me out with that. They took me to date with Destiny. I was not the same person. But fast forward, it's now March 2000, February 2010. And I've still never talked to Tony after I'd worked over a couple of years, a couple of years, you know, a couple of years off, all that. So I started working in 2005. So now it's been five years. I've never talked to the man. And he does this event for the salespeople in the company and the coaches, all the people of influence. He does a two-day influence boot camp. And if you think you know Tony Robbins and people like, if anybody has heard him, seen his stuff, like the shit that he teaches, like UPW and all that, he created that at 22 years old. And it still works. So he's just doing the same shit. And even his date with destiny, which is a signature program, created like 28 years old. He was also advising the president of the United States at 28. He's pretty much doubled his learning every year since, and he's fucking 62. And so this dude, he does this influence thing, and it is so next level, not just what he's teaching, but how he is. And so on the first day, within the first few hours, he does this thing. And then he asks this woman up front, or he asks the audience, he says, Hey. We're here to focus on the client. So give me a scenario where you tried to sell a client and you couldn't and we'll beat it up and I'll give you some tools. Sound fair? This woman stands up and she's all about herself. And Tony's like, obviously you're in pain. So I'm going to do an inter I'm going to help you out. But this is a reminder for everybody. This is about the clients. This is not Tony Robbins fucking therapy session. We're not here for that. This isn't about you. So he deals with her. And then the next woman stands up and she's a thousand times worse. And Tony's getting a little frustrated. And this woman was awful, like just awful. About an hour of dealing with this, this woman, you could tell he's getting pretty angry. And he's like, by the way, what do you do, do for me? Because he's really frustrated. And she goes, I'm a coach. She goes, you're a fucking coach. You're a fucking coach. You do not represent me. This fucking, this is fucking pathetic. He must've said the word fuck 10,000 times, screaming it. He's beat red. Um, 
pretty much fired her on the spot after like hours of yelling. Afterwards, it was like somebody got shot in that room. So we take a break and we go out in the hall and it ends up being a long break. And we come back in. And because this woman was right up front in the front row, nobody's in the first front row. And so he's like, and you could tell, even when break Tony comes in, he's still got that fucking energy. He's like, you think he's going to fire everybody? And he's like, oh, nobody wants to sit up front. So, so somebody come up here or something, something just took over me. I was all the way in the back. I stood up and I sprinted to the front and I sat right, right in that front seat. And as I'm sitting down, he says, you stand up. What is your name? What do you do for me? And we had this dialogue for a couple hours. Um, and I remember my legs shaking. I mean, I'm so infatuated with this man and what he represents for me. And I'm just very, I'm like, and we just have this back and forth and I'm kind of joking with him and he's joking with me and he makes, you know, some references and all this stuff. And we just have this really great dialogue. And at the end of it, he says to the company, he says, he says, everybody look at this man. You want to know what our fucking company's about? It's this fucking man. If you want to have somebody to follow, it's this fucking man. If you ever feel lost, just look at what this fucking man is doing. Everybody tell me your experience with this guy. If you're like genuine, authentic, caring. And so people just like, he, he did some things to lock me into an identity. He reinforced it. Um, just it's what he does. It's it's step six of his seven steps for creating lasting gain. He's changing it and he's linking my new identity to a new peer group to make sure that the new change is ecologically sound. So now I know what he did, but it was life-changing for me. And so that was our first dialogue. And at the end of that two-day event, he announced that he was going to do like a, a contest for the year. And at the top person in each division of the company got to go to Fiji. But if you broke all these records and did all this stuff, you got not only got to go to Fiji, you got to stay in his house, eat dinner with them, play, you know, just, it was just like, a dream, like presidents wait on wait, wait list for this shit. And it's like, you're with the man every day and all that stuff. So um, I made a decision that I wanted to win. I was still really sick. So in 2010, I worked half the week for Tony, laid in bed or sometimes a hospital bed um, all that year. And I just worked and it gave me purpose and it changed my life. It was a pivotal moment for me. And so at the end of the year, obviously I was the top person, even though I worked half as much. He created an award based on my performance, this chairman's award. And he sent out a company-wide like audio message to everybody. And it was just like, I remember exactly where I was sitting. I remember the exact moment, tears going down my face. And, you know, from there, I got to go to Fiji with him and ask him all these dumb questions about things and play golf with him. And he was so kind, so sincere, so patient, so warm, so genuine, so challenging, so fun, you know, and you see somebody like him and, you know, people badmouth Tony sometimes, whatever, that, that have never met him. Um, and even people that have been around him, he's very intense. So, I mean, he's not saying he's a perfect guy. But for me, it was just like, like you almost expect something to me, but it was like, he's just so perfect. You know, he's just like so awesome. And like, even if you had this infatuated view of who he is, like he was somehow a thousand times better. And, you know, just the moments with him and I brought a buddy and we just laughed and he's telling stories and like, he woke us up at three in the morning and we went out like to this, um, this, we jumped off a bridge into a river. And we just floated in these rafts out to a river to the ocean and they had a boat pick us up. And now it's like 4.30 in the morning. And we're just, you know, just all these little things, like surprises. Like, yeah. wake the fuck up, wake the fuck up, it's three in the morning, we're doing this thing. You know, like what? You know, just like, just a crazy week. You know, just like, just magic. And, you know, it just broke down moments. And, you know, he, he says this, and this is kind of where I got it for the sales thing. It's like, he says, when you look, when you die, you look back on your life, you're not gonna remember every conversation, every, like all of it, you're gonna remember these moments how do we create those moments and how do we be a creator of moments for other people? And I've used that philosophy, in my sales conversations. I say, look, I believe you're going to have a lot of conversations in your life 
but there are certain powerful conversations that you're going to have. They're going to change everything to you, everything for you. This is going to be one of those conversations if you're open to it. But this surface conversation that we're having, it's, it can't be this. So is that something you want? You know, and so there's, there's that moment. And I say, look, in order for anything to change in your life, something new needs to come into your life. That could be this conversation, but also something new must come out of you. A new level of commitment, a new value, a new standard. And if you're game, it's not about me, but there are processes that can take you there. But also there's processes that you came to this call with that you're going right back to where this is just a waste of our time. Disconnect. Mm -hmm. And so I've had, I've had these conversations with entire companies, bosses, people that are worth bajillions of dollars. And they're just like, because it was real, it wasn't a script, but also I believed it and I cared and I wanted more for those people. Like they allowed me the, the ability to, to lead them, to lead them, not that I'm better than them, but I say, look, you know, here's, you're doing a lot and you're thinking a lot. There's a lot on your plate. Let me lead this for you where you don't have to, so I'm going to make, I'm going to help you make a decision, not so that I control your decision-making process or try to get you to do something. I'm like, look, cause you're struggling with this, this decision to, to make more, to be more, to have more because you have a lot of, you're lacking clarity. Is it okay if I share with you what's working right now? Cause you came to this call because something obviously isn't. But this, is, this has got to be a two-way street. And if I'm more committed to you, I get stronger and I'm already strong enough. And, and I know you're stronger than me in a lot of ways and vice versa. But the point of this conversation is just to make sure that we can align together to move you in a certain direction. Is that what you want? You know, And it's, it's hard to say no to that. It's hard to say no to that if you feel the person actually cares. Especially if it's coming from you. Um, before only because I, I care. Only because I care though. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's, there's a more darker path. I want to take this conversation here in a second. And I'll ask you some more questions on philosophy, but before we do, I would definitely would love to wrap up the Tony thing with what was the number one thing. And if it's not one, it's maybe several, I'm happy to know them, but what was like the number one paradigm shift or mental frame you walked away with that you still carry with you to this day in terms of like how you operate with this world, just through your conversations with them. You know, it's, it's interesting. I kind of was talking from this distinction the last few minutes. It's like mission and purpose are everything. And so when somebody can see me be very, when I'm coaching somebody, be very direct. And if you only took that sound bite, I might sound like a complete dickhead. But the mission and the purpose and the intention behind what I'm saying matters. And what saved me from being perceived as a douche, some people will think I'm a douche regardless. Um, but and I don't I've see anyone said of you. And I've definitely, but I've definitely been self-serving, all of that too. Like I've been all those things. And so if I see it in somebody else, I know that I'm only aware of it because that that's present in me too. So I, I have a lot of compassion. Um, but I say this all the time. It's like mission has saved my life. It's like mission has not only saved my life, but it saved the conversation. And there's other people that worked in sales that would say my exact same words, but it wasn't in them. And so because of that, people didn't feel safe being led by them. And so I feel almost on some level, I feel like I could lead pretty much anybody in the world in some capacity, only because I have 
a mission that's bigger than myself. And the people that are the most successful in the world also have a mission that's bigger than themselves. And so I automatically have rapport. We might have different missions, but we align in some way. And because I know some of the patterns and I'm a coach and I understand communication with people within themselves and other people, I can hear some things and give feedback from a place of not judgment, but as an alignment, lining them to a vision that's bigger than themselves in a way that's supporting. And so this whole concept of mission and purpose, because I, I, you know, I geek out, you know, I show you language patterns and questions and phrases and sales, but I think what really makes that, what really makes that move? And so the more, the more I think about it, the biggest distinction is just mission and purpose. And when I've seen Tony, um, you know, it's just, it's the authentic alignment with vision and mission and speaking from that place consistently. Mm -hmm. So I, and I think that just gives a resonance and a power to somebody's words, because we can think of all the tactical things like more resonance to your voice and all of that. But it's like, you know, but it just, it just comes when it's there. It's just like, it's there. And when somebody has it inside of them, there's a certain animation to the voice, a certain energy around the eyes that can't be faked. You know, it's like, and if you're the best actor in the world, yes, you can fake it, you know, but at the same time, that's because they rehearsed it over and over again. And they have a script and a lot of those things, but you see those people off camera, off script, their life's a fucking mess Yeah, because they don't have the words anymore. They don't have somebody else's words and they don't get 20 fucking takes. And so when you're with somebody and that's, and some actors, like I think Leo has it like for real, I think Brad Pitt like has it for real, but they're also been doing it a long time and they have a life outside of the thing. And so there's, you know, cause we're all actors in some ways, we're all using a script in some ways, we're all learning from other people, but it's that true alignment with yourself. And that mission has to be something that's supportive of other people, not just, I want this thing. What would you say to those people that hear exactly that? And then they ask you or they say to themselves, well, I don't know what my purpose is. Or I don't know what my vision is. And I don't know where to start to find it because it just seems like such a distant land. When I was spending that two and a half years um, in my early 20s, depressed, sad, up at four in the morning, doing everything perfect and like literally wanted to kill myself. I had this quote on the wall from Martin Luther King. It said, if a man has not found a purpose in his life that he would die for, he is not fit to live. Wow. And I think I have no great war. I'm not trying to save the whales. Like, like I'm not fit to live. Like I'm, and I'm getting attention. I'm getting these things. I have doors open to me, but I'm like, I'm miserable. And then when I even get, would get in those environments, I was like, there's nothing like I have no purpose. I have nothing to give. I, I have no, no reason for, for living. And so part of my insecurity came from the fact that I didn't find that. And it just became like, like a thing for me to just take on life. And I was doing a lot of things at a very surface level. And I decided just to, to do the best I could with what I had and go all in on everything and, and then talk to people about it. And then I talked to people about what was going on inside of me and I get feedback and this and that, and I create some distinctions. And I was like, this is really nice. And then I, then I found Tony Robbins. I was like, wow, it turns out you can actually make a living from this shit, talking mm -hmm. about these things, um, going into those dark places. And I found a lot of it just came from these, like I said, powerful conversations. I was like, well, maybe that's, that's part of it. You know? So it's like defining it when you're young, maybe there's not that, but maybe you see something that resonates. You're like, well, maybe that's part of it. Maybe Explore that's it. part of it. And Maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's part of it. 
And then you find somebody that I think is like a mentor that you have alignment. You know, I've been and a mentor you to some ways and, you know, I've learned some things for you. So it's like you find things in certain people and you take some things from me and from Cole and all that stuff. And I think it's something you put together. I took a lot from Tony. I've taken a lot from a lot of different people and that shaped me. And then there's, you know, there's people that shape us, our parents and our parents, you know, sometimes we outgrow them because we're trying to succeed and then we can resent our parents. And there's just like so much to it. So it's, it becomes this, this thing that you don't figure out all at once, but I think you have to find things that you are passionate about. And also the, the belief of Martin Luther King, if you've not found something you would die for, you're not fit to live. That puts a lot of pressure on yourself. And I was like, well, maybe it doesn't have to be that. Maybe I can be passionate about just like enjoying my life and bringing joy to others. It doesn't be, you know, because even right now you see all these kind of young woke kids that have no purpose. They're just like, well, I want to be a good person. I want people to think that I'm good. So I'm going to call everybody else a racist and say that I, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, it's just like, it doesn't make any sense, but these are just lost people that want to have purpose and meaning and they get ego boost. So it's not even them. They're getting attention. Like if I, if I, if I call somebody racist, I automatically can become famous. I'm like, Hey, this racist thing happened to me. Or I saw, I saw this guy putting down this Hispanic woman and this thing. And they said this. So I said this, I'm 500 K followers right there. Yeah. Right there. You know, it's like, it's like the, the, uh, the racist algorithm, you know, it's like, post your black square. Yeah. Pro COVID anti-rate. It's just, it's become, and these are like huge issues, but they've also become comical because of the quality of people that have no mission other than to be famous are there. And so it's just this delusional thing of social media and all of that, that's, that's really fake. And I think that the pathway through that to be authentic and real, despite all the chaos, um, it shapes us, but it's real and it is a tougher path. And so I think in the pursuit of one's mission and purpose, it's part of the thing that excites you, but it's also having the courage to choose the, the tougher path, not the easy path. Cause it's never been easier to make money. It's never been easier. I mean, like you're making great money. Like, you know, I see you and Luke making great money. There was like, if you're 22, like the, the amount of 21, 22, 23, 24, 25 year old kids making the income that you know, these people, like when I was that age, there was, there was nobody making that kind of money. Nobody now with, you know, with the internet and all of that. I mean, it was just, it, it was like literally one in 5 million people your age could even make, I mean, it's just really rare unless they went to college, got the pedigree degree, got into banking and were a genius, like fucking, you know, like, or like Jordan Belfort. It was like, it was impossible back then. Now with the internet, it's leveled the playing field and now people are learning faster. And so the, to cut through that noise and find your own unique voice, I, I think it's, it's tough. And I think it's actually tougher now in some way. It's easier to make money, but tougher to find your thing. Mm -hmm. because the money, so whenever, say you get attention from a girl or you get money, it's like a dog getting a bone. What gets rewarded gets repeated, but we're often getting rewarded for things that are externals have nothing to do with our values and who we are. So we get this, that we can live into a facade and waste a lot of time. And that's why you'll see a lot of people getting lost, you know, and they're like, well, I should be happy, but I'm not. I spent two and a half years just asking myself tough questions all the time. And I was doing everything, but I was even more miserable. And so this, this became my thing. And, you know, for me, I, I no, nobody ever says when I, when I grow up, I want to be in sales. I'm a good salesperson. I didn't say that. <laughs> nobody does. Nobody does. But take. I, I did not have the attention. I didn't have people respect my words. 
and I always felt invisible and I wanted to work on it. And then it just so happens that those skills have a practical application in sales. And even when I worked for Tony, I didn't necessarily want to be the top salesperson. I mean, I did, and I wanted to make money and all of that, but I hadn't experienced. And I always say information doesn't change your life. Experiences do. We've had experiences that shape us, painful ones, pleasurable ones, you know, whatever. We're shaped by these experiences. And when I saw Tony for the first time and I saw a bunch of speakers, I had certain experiences that, that shaped me. And I thought in that moment, I want to make the world a better place by exposing people to those experiences. I was like, so if you get in this program, if you lock in with me, you're going to have an experience. You might not like some of these experiences, but they're going to shape you for the good. And so I would sell people, not, I'd say, hey, you're going to make more money and all this stuff. I give them what they want, but I knew in my core that I was serving people that I, that I believed. And I still believe that if people, you know, would come to these, these amazing events, not just Tony, but there's other people too. I was like, if you get in that room with these people and you have this experience, I think it'll make your life better. And I was like, if I can make enough people do that, I can make the world better. And so that became part of my thing. And so a lot of, I've learned from Tony, but now I've got my own stuff and we got other things. And now like I've got an event here next weekend in my, in my home and I'm working through the content because I want these people to have a fucking experience that not just gives them a bunch of texts and tools, but makes them a stronger person. And so it's like, that's what this game is. And that, that can be any business that can be, be anything, but that's ultimately what we're doing. And so I'm aware of what I'm marketing and what I'm saying, but once people come in and have an experience of me and I take them through a process, um, that's, that's where I'm able to make some change and make a difference and really create the long-term relationships that I have. Yeah. Yeah. I love that answer too. Cause you know, it's so true is most people that try to find their purpose and they're lost for it. They're at home on their computer, making a bunch of money, like you said, cause it's easy now. And because of that, they're not getting experiences because they're not taking a tough route outside yeah. of their computer, outside of their home. So yeah. I, I completely resonate and agree with that. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to dig into that for one second. I remember yeah. when I started doing the acting thing for a little bit, I had this photographer and he had filmed, like, I took a lot of bad pictures. We, we all are really insecure. And he, he also did one of Brad Pitt's first uh, photo shoots, like some really famous people before they blew up. And so he showed me some of those old photos. He says, look, they take bad pictures too. And he showed me some pictures like James Franco that were clearly not great. I mean, still good looking people, but not yeah. great pictures. Like where your eyes are weird or something like that. And he's like, you know, we've all got some of these pictures where it's, you know, it's not perfect. And so it was cool. But he says, you know what makes somebody really great? as an actor, you would make somebody really great. As you know, I was, I was a bit lost. Cause I was like, if I just need to read all these books and do all this stuff and go to classes, he says, those, those are never the actors that make it. He says to be a great actor or entrepreneur or whatever you draw from your experiences. So part of what makes you great is actually having an interesting life. And if you're only this internet keyboard jockey person who's making money, it's going to fizzle out. And there, there are people that do it, Alex Becker, but he's got a lot of personality. He's got a lot of charisma. He's got, he's got a strong point of view and he's a very smart guy, but how many Alex Beckers are there? You know? And so there's, so there's that, but he also was in the military, does this thing. You know, stories. He's, like, he's, he's got an interesting life. And, you know, and so I think like a lot of it comes down to having really powerful experiences and that becomes part of your content. That becomes part of your story. 
and that makes people attracted to you. Not the fact that you've done all this stuff um, with exception. There's people, you know, Elon Musk. I mean, it's all in business for him, but he's doing interesting things. He's not just following a system. He's creating a new system, which is a higher level of thinking, which also relates to purpose. And so that, that process, but he also worked in a lot of other companies down here first. And he did a lot down here before he had that. And that, that came from being connected in different ways. So yeah, it's uh, having an interesting life is, is important. It's so important. And that's the, the number one thing I always try to tell men too, is because I might not be the most, like I look at people that, you know, we were talking about earlier before we started this podcast that are my age and worth tens of millions of dollars. And then I feel behind, like I'm, I'm not doing it right. But uh, the one just really iterate to everyone coming up is you want to have an interesting life, right? Because the thing I, I am getting better at the monetary aspect and I do make good money for my age, obviously, but there's always someone that doesn't better. But the one thing I do have down, I think for my category of my age set is experience. I have a very life experience um, of living in five different states, three different continents, stories yeah. that, you know, like you were talking about, you'll tell for the rest of your life. And that's the, always the thing I think about as at the end of the day on your deathbed, or even when you have kids, what are you going to pass down to them? Right. Cause like you can give them money, but that doesn't really do anything for them. They, they'll be happy for a day and then they're gone with it. And then you didn't really have an impact left on them. But what you can give them is stories, experiences. That's something I always remember with my father is I didn't have the best relationship with him, but I remember him telling me stories of like how he went to Europe with $2 in his pocket on a one-way ticket and that he married some girl on in a Greek island for a year and then left and like all these crazy stories that made me want to go sit out in life, especially when you're on your deathbed, right? What are you going to look back at? It's not going to be, oh, I made this amount of money or I, I, my bank account looked like this at one point. You're going to think about that time that, you know, like you were in the jungle and you bought alcohol from the cartel at 3 a.m. with some girl <laughs> you shouldn't have been doing. This, those things that make you laugh with your friends. So I just think that's such a beautiful answer and I completely relate. Changing the, the tone of the conversation a bit. I've been taking this past and you and me have been talking back and forth on it, but I've taken this past almost two years now, just studying philosophy. Mm -hmm. So I start out with, you know, uh, stoicism, obviously, I think everyone does. It's like the, the basic bitch philosophy that everyone gets in on, yeah. uh, but yeah. Taoism, um, hermeticism, even though that's the bait, it's not really philosophy, but I still think there's some merit to it. And then what I've really been studying recently is, um, is Jungian from, you know, Carl Jung, yeah. uh, and some, the shadow. And that's what I want to talk about. Exactly. Is I, I look at a lot of guys that are really successful and it's not a bulletproof hundred percent of the time. For 90% of them, the guys that are the most successful are the guys that also went through some of the most traumatic shit. And, you know, I know you've been through your own things. I've been through your own things. And I've talked about this podcast before and obviously had personal conversations with you. Um, for the longest time, I wanted to let go of those. Like I wanted to like cleanse myself, heal it, not make it a part of me and just remove it from my identity. But I realized the more I did that, the more I struggled and kind of like, it was, it was stalling in, in my success and career. And after studying this type of philosophy, it really talks about embedding the shadow, right? Like you can never get rid of your shadow. It's always going to be part of you, that duality. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to hear your viewpoint on it. Do you believe as, as a man for success and all that, you do have to carry some level of darkness in you, that conflict like you were referring earlier that's in yourself? Or do you think it's um, justifiable to let it go completely at some point in your life? Like you said, I, th I think it's always there. And the, you know, when I think of it, you know, it's great how we, we learn through stories and all of that. And of course you can read the terminology, but 
the TV show that became so popular because I think it really spoke to people about the shadow was uh, is Dexter. And he called it his dark passenger because he had this part of him that just wanted to kill people. And he had this past and all of that that was unhealed. And, you know, he's evolving through all of the seasons. So it's it was just a fascinating show. Um, but I think all of us have that. And I think you need to have a level of awareness around it. But also that shadow can overtake you, you know, and then you're just drinking and fucking all night and doing these things. And it's right. like the ego self. And so there's a there's a healthy part of you where you have it in check. And then it's just, you know, it's different levels of awareness where you're just unconscious. And then you can be aware, you know, like this, this level of being self-aware. It takes, you know, the three S's, stillness, silence, and solitude. And then, you know, and even last night I was doing a bit of a breathing meditation and, you know, it's like you, you get into that place um, where you just notice, like you notice your body, you know, you notice your breath, and then you can notice you're noticing, like, you know, you notice your thoughts. So you're noticing your thoughts, but then there's another level of you, the, the person that's noticing you're noticing, right? It's like this level, level of awareness. And once you get into that place, there's like, there's that, that Zen moment that you stay in for about a millisecond and then it, then it's gone as well. And then, you know, and that's the place that certain people have lived in, you know, there's Jesus and Buddha and stuff like that. But then there's just us humans and we're, you know, we're playing with that energy. And anytime that we overreact or get taken over by the shadow, we're unconscious. You know, we're, we're reactive. We're acting from the reptilian primitive part of the brain. And this whole concept, when you look at even brain chemistry and the prefrontal cortex, it's like, these are evolved structures that weren't there you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. So we're evolving, you know, it's like from the brains evolving. And I think part of the purpose of life is to evolve and things that evolve in the Navy SEALs when they do all those kind of like those cycles of, you know, of repetitions, they call them evolutions. So to evolve, uh, there's usually some sort of pain associated to it, evolving physically, mentally, emotionally, evolving in our character, evolving through something, there's a, a letting go, there's a different connection, there's different neural connections that which have us thinking at a higher level. And so the shadow self in and of itself is a, I don't want to say lower, it's a less, less evolved, it's all about me, ego-driven thing. And so there's people that poo-poo that, and they're like, oh, be all of this, and they're talking about be all, be all of this like spiritual stuff, but really that's their ego justifying and they're making something wrong. So it's like the egos come in the back door, you know? And so a lot of those two, because they're making people wrong, but it's, but it's right. none of them. And so I mean, we've all got it. And you know, what you resist persists. And, you know, it's just like, it's all the woke social media stuff, like these people justifying being good people. But these are, these are a lot of them are like the worst people ever. You know, when you look at some of these people talking about social issues, they're just awful people because they just want attention and they just want to vilify other people. And so it's, it, they have it too. And it's just, it's unhealthy. It's, it's lowering the consciousness of themselves and others. And unfortunately they're being rewarded for it. And so it's, it's not good to keep it in check and to really connect with your, that darkness in you. Um, you know, I, I had partnered with Taylor Welch for a while, traffic and funnels guy, and he, he broke it down. We did a, like a sales training. It, Cole Gordon was one of the students in my training. And, you know, he was a sales rep there. It, and Brian Ostermiller was in the room. Alaric was in the Shout room. Shout out, Brian. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just an awesome group of people. 
and Taylor did the first day. And then, um, and I didn't know what I was going to talk about. We had just connected and he invited me to this thing and we became partners after it. But I did the whole second day and I was like 30% into my content eight hours later. And I'm like, dude, I'm just warming up. They were just like mind blown. So we became partners out of it. But his day, he had talked about there's uh, like light energy and dark energy. Dark energy, like even in sales, where like, I'm going to fucking kill it. I'll be fucking number one. You're hopped up on a Red Bull and you're just like, I'm going to fucking whatever. And then there's like this light energy of like purpose and mission and like, you know, serving and all of that. And talked a lot about some people can have too much of this or too much of this. And both will drive you to an extent. One will burn you out eventually, the dirty energy. And then there's this, but you need a little, I think you need a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. Gives you a little bit of an edge. And so if you can use that, but not have it use you and know how to, and so that's a different level of self-awareness because there's a, there's a time for it. Also, when you look at even like an Andrew Tate or some level like a Grant Cardone, um, I don't know these people personally per se. And there's other people too, that the people that are making a lot of money, when we think of like everything is energy, but there's like the spiritual energy, people zinning out that are very conscious. Those people generally do not make the most money. Because as we're marketing and speaking, we got to meet people where they are. So the people say, even like an Andrew Tate, again, I don't like him. I think he's very consciously aware, but if he talks down on this level, these fucking bitches and all this stuff, it attracts a certain energy and it's combative and it's different. And so you can use that energy and attention down here, but to not get caught up in it, I think you have to be aware. So I think it's a little bit of a front. Mm. Sometimes those people can get lost in it too. They're very consciously aware of what they're doing to connect with the lower vibes of people. And it's got to meet people where they are. And as it's lower, just like if there's eight stories to a building, well, not even everybody has an eighth story, but everybody has a first story. And so the first story, the second story at the first story, like if you and I are talking, having a conversation and there's an earthquake, and the building starts shaking, I'm no longer connected to you. My hormones react differently and I start thinking about my survival. And so it starts shaking, you know, and I have to pay attention to it. And my whole nervous system becomes this. So as we trigger people and talk about the recession and here's what you need to look out for, the biggest problem I see in the marketing, your business is not going to survive without this. We're activating lower drives in people, which can make them less conscious. They become less conscious of what they want to do because now they're focused on their survival. So there are people that are speaking like an Andrew Tate, Grant Cardone to an extent that are making people less conscious, but, but we live in an unconscious world. And so the thing is, how do we grab their attention, these unconscious people, but have a process once they buy from us that ascends them and they'll stay with you for life, you know? And so we give them what they want and they come in and give them what they need. And so I think like people, people love horror movies. People love dramas. People, people are addicted to the things they say they hate because people are driven by a lot of shadow. People are driven by a lot of ego. Mm-hmm. And so each one of those people, you know, we, we're always going to be battling with it, but all of us have different levels of consciousness inside of us. And so I think to make it in sales and marketing and business these days, you need to be aware and you need to utilize your darkest self, connect with your darkest self, communicate from your darkest self to grab people and they're, they're dark passengers and pull them in and you can make a lot of money, but it's going to burn out and you're not going to add value. And there's going to be a backlash there too. So we need processes of both the dark and the light, and then be able to communicate that effectively, knowing where we meet people at on a conscious level. Now with the, the shadow self, 
that can take you over and there's a lot there. But it's like, if you just see it as your dark passenger or whatever, and you can make friends with it, what, what you resist persists. And so you have to have, have, have a healthy relationship with your ego and just know that it's, it's often about self-preservation. It wants all this stuff, you know, and it just has these basic needs. And if you can play with it, you can become more conscious. So it's, it's always, you know, it's the yin and the yang. Right. And these, these concepts, positive, negative, yin, yang, to get balance, neutrality, you know, it's like you're, you're, it's never going to be just that. It's always, you're being pulled by relationship or this or that or money. It's like, it's these things all around. And so that's, that's the dance back and forth. And it's like, as we, you know, ascend, that's how we, we take it up, but it's just understanding energy. And that's, it's a certain type of energy that's inside of us. And that's it. That's how I see it. I love that. I, uh, I mean, that's that, I don't know if you saw that tattoo I got recently with the the bat wings and the yeah, just, wings. Yeah. yeah, it's basically that. So yeah. yeah, that's a great answer. Um, This next part I want to ask you, and this is kind of like one of the last parts I want to ask you, but I'm more asking for myself. And if you're not comfortable like talking about this, you just let me know and we'll cut this part out, change the subject. Cool. Um, I want to ask because and I see the tattoo on your, on your bicep. Yeah. Um, I know, obviously, like you spoke about it, and I've wanted to talk to you about this, but I, I, I wanted to make sure I really chose my words carefully before I did. And um, I know, obviously, recently, your father's passed away. Um, I, I know, you know, from I, I text you, you, you send me a message. I text you as I was going into the funeral that day. Yeah, I say the voice message back. Um, I, I know, obviously, you spoke about earlier, like you didn't have the best relationship with your father, too. Sometimes we had, you know, Sometimes. yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of like a position I'm in. Right. And I think it's, it's a position. A lot of guys are in. It's like, yeah, there are those guys that like their father's completely abandoned, but that wasn't necessarily my case. Like, you know, my father's like present. I can call him right now. He'll pick up. But um, it was always kind of like this weird relationship where like, I haven't ever really fully connected with him past being an adult. It, yeah. It's hard to, for several other reasons we could obviously get into if we need. But one thing I have thought about a lot, recently and your father's passing has made me think about that as like what if i don't connect with him before before that happens and i wanted to ask you did like did you find that connection you feel we're looking for before he did or did you not and you wish you approached differently one day you know and he was drunk a lot and a lot of bad things happened and said some things that were just really hurtful and one day i called i was in i was in bali and i call him and uh just want to ask him all these questions. I was very direct with him. And he was like, man, where's this coming from? He's like, have you got all Jesus and spiritual on me? I was like, no, I just, these are questions on my heart. And can I ask you? And he gave me answers. And we, we talked a couple hours about it and just asked him all the questions about how he was, about how he was, about who he is. And, you know, not to put him down at all, you know, I was, as your parents, you have expectations and you want them to be a leader and they're, and they're part of you. And so there's parts of ourselves we don't like because it's a part of these people that we kind of look down on because they're not growing, they're not doing these things. Mm-hmm. And so we're judging these people that brought us into the plant, brought us, gave us life, you know, and it could have been a mistake, you know, you could, you could be here by accident or whatever, but you're here. And these people are part of your journey. And I think it's just part of becoming more conscious for me. I talked about certain things that I didn't like, things that he had said. And he's like, where's this coming from? And, you know, we talked about it for a while. He had, he had one mission in his whole life. He just wanted to be a tough guy. He wanted to drink beer, 
wanted to fuck some women, all that stuff. Like that was his, that was his target. And at the end of the conversation, no matter how much I challenged him, he was like, that was my, that was my target. That was my thing. And I think I expected him to have a different thing because I wanted him to lead me and give me answers for me to do a bigger thing. But I was limiting my thing based on his thing. And I, I was hoping that he'd have a higher ceiling with the hopes that it would raise my ceiling. But your parents in some ways, and you know, they're kind of stepping stones. They support you and they do all these things, but then it's us to step, take that next step. And it's a step that we can't see. And sometimes we're stepping out on faith to build on this and do something, but I constantly expecting more uh, mentorship, you know, more feedback, more leadership, more caring, but I'm stepping into a realm they've never been into before. So it's hard to have those conversations. And so, and now my mom is all I've got. I got a really small family and I, you know, I put a lot of those expectations on her and judging her for not reading self-development books. And she's like wasting time reading these dumb books or this TV show or something like that. But that's just, you know, and you know, you're not going to change your parents. Not going to, you know, I'm not going to fucking listen to their kid. And so it's, I think there's a area of acceptance that comes with that. And then getting just really clear on your mission and realizing that everything serves that mission, even if you're aware of it or not. And I think we all have a responsibility to do more than our parents. It's tough if your dad's like uh, Elon Musk or Tony Robbins, that must be really tough. Yeah. And I remember thinking for myself, man, you know, I wish my dad was Tony, I wish my dad was like Tony Robbins. I wonder what it would be like to have my dad as be Tony Robbins. But I lived with Tony's son for about two years. And now I'm like, man, I'm really happy my dad is not Tony Robbins. It's big shoes mm -hmm. to fill. So we want that person to be more, but you know, through my relationship with Tony, I've gotten to, I mean, he's obviously, I mean, I don't have the relationship that him and his son have, but you know, Tony said some really beautiful things to me where, you know, it was kind of that, that relationship, but at the same time too, that's unhealthy for me in some ways to have that to live into. And you think you're going to build on your father, but like with Jarek's not built on his father. Most, you know, when you see the really successful person, their kids are usually pieces of shit or they don't do anything. And so it's like, sometimes I think that we want more of our parents and think that we'd be better. Our ego, like I should have had the support. I should have had this mentorship from these people, but the people that have that do nothing. And the people that don't have that have a choice to make. And they can limit their own success based on this human who just has their own shit. That's your parents. Mm -hmm. Or you can decide on a new target. And so part of it is letting go of the expectation, creating a new target, stepping out on faith, becoming your own man, all of that. And so it's, you know, we expect yeah. these things of these people and it's, you know, it's, it's a tough balance to go through. And I find myself a lot of times too judging my mom or getting frustrated with my mom still, but I know my mom's, you know, she just turned 68, you know, and I, I don't see her every month. And so like, how many more times I'm going to see her the rest of my life, like 30, 40 times. So I'll go spend a day with her, but not all the time, you know? And so like, how many, how many times am I actually going to see this woman and how do I want that to be? But also, who do I want to be in that relationship? Not just what do I expect of her to give mm -hmm. to me when this person's already given me fucking life. And it's yeah. like, we've done enough. You know what I mean? And so I have to quit imposing expectations on people to want what I want for them when they just have their own wants and they're just a human. And so I, I think with, with my father, and we talked about it, he just wanted to be a tough guy. I just wanted to travel and bang some women. And, you know, I could judge that. But if he hadn't wanted that, maybe I wouldn't be here. You know what I mean? It's like, 
maybe it's all perfect. Maybe it's just, and I'm supposed to take something from that. And I can choose to be led by that because he wanted me to just live in the same town and work a manual labor job and do some construction and just kind of live around there. And that would be my life. And that's 99% of the people that grew up in my hometown, but something in me wanted something more and it was difficult. And then, and now I've got something to give to other people, but it's because I evolved through pain and I could have done the easy thing, but the easy thing of staying in that town would have been like the hardest thing because I'd be miserable. And so there's always going to be this balance, you know, and um, you know, it is a part of me. And so I, you know, it's just a reminder. They got my dad's, you know, when my dad passed away, um, the nurse printed up the EKG of his heartbeat. And so I got one of his last heartbeats, you know, right here and printed up on me and it, and it fades out. And it's just a good reminder. It's, it's going to fade out, you know? And so, yeah, it's, and when I fade out, do I want to fade out with judgment or anger or fear or resentment? Or do I want to ascend and evolve at a higher level of consciousness and energy? And that's not possible with judgment and all of that and expecting things of other people. And so sometimes with your parents, you might not be best friends because you have different values, but you can appreciate them. And you'll find that the more you appreciate them for who they are, they'll actually open up. And then they actually might change because they see something in you that's coming from a place of non-judgment, not a place of like, I want you to be doing this or being a certain way. And these people also have their own scars. They had their own fucked up parents. They had their own trauma. They have their own time talking about things that are emotional. Yeah. And you know, you could say, hey, I see this in you. I think you should go to the seminar, read this book. But they might not want to, might just not be part of their thing. And so you can craft, you can find ways to try to bring it up and get them to do it. But, you know, a lot of times they're just not going to, you know, it's like, what are their interests? And if you genuinely focus on these other humans, they might open up and then ask you, but they've got to ask. And so, yeah, you can't influence somebody in any way if they feel judged. And the thing is, we're, we're constantly judging our parents. And I just, for me, I don't, I don't want to be someone who judges my parents, you know, live or dead. And I just don't, I don't want to be a judgmental person. So I think it's just, I've come full circle with it. What a beautiful answer. I, I love that perspective of um, flipping the perspective, not who do you want them to be in your relationship, but who do you want to be in your relationship with them? Yeah. That's powerful, right? Um, that's a lot to think about. I'm going to have to sit on that. Um, you you yeah. kind of answered it a little bit with like the fading out and all that. So if that was your answer, that's fine. I'm curious too, with, with his passing in this next chapter of your life, do you feel like a new weight on your shoulders? Like you're the the last lineage of, of your family. And it's like, you're now like the, what's the word I'm looking for? The hierarchy, right? Um, do you feel like that's changed at all? Or do you feel it's kind of the same? You know, for anybody that's had the experience when your father passes, it changes everything. I got a, another mentor, Robert Heyman, and his dad died a couple, a couple blocks in uh, Beverly Hills on Rodeo, just off Rodeo are named after, um, Fred Heyman, and he's one of my mentor's parents, but they didn't have a good relationship either. Um, and it made Robert, who's worth bajillions of dollars, kind of develop his own thing. And so I, you know, I talked to him about it some, but he was like, yeah, everything changes after that. And so it has. And for me, I don't have kids. I'm 44. I'll be 45 this year. But, you know, fortunately, I, I feel like I feel like I will have kids and I think it'd be a great dad. Um, but I pour into a lot of people like, you know, I meet people like you and, you know, I just try to be there with non-judgment and give good advice and just, you know, not be pressured or anything, but uh, I love it. And I've kind of put it into my business. I put it into the mentoring that I do, the coaching. Um, but at the same time, you know, you do start thinking about legacy 
because you are going to die, you know? And for me, similar to my father, just wanted to travel and drink and bang lots of girls. And I've done that. I've done that like a lot. I've done, I've gotten more than my fair share of that. And so at the same time too, like, like, and I realized too, a long time ago, like, like you say, sometimes as a man, I just need to go through that phase of my life and just be done with it. But I've realized now uh, meeting very pretty women and having sex with them is probably never going to get old for me. It's probably always going to be a cool thing. But at the same time too, it's a lower level of thing. So I have to constantly, there's always going to be that desire. Shout like, out. You know, it's like, do I want my life to just, just be that? And I've been spending all my time doing all this nonsense. I'm not going to be able to create everything because I'm like, you know, it's hard to do, do everything. And we meet some people, it seems like they have bajillions of dollars and traveling or good looking and they, and they do all the banging and stuff too, but you have to make certain sacrifices. You know, and there's the classic line. If you don't make sacrifices for what you want, what you want becomes your sacrifice. And so it makes you start reevaluating. What do I actually want in the limited time that I have? Um, how do I want to be remembered? And there's a classic Stephen Covey line. Like, what would they say about you at your, you know, your eulogy when you die? Um, you know, and I thought a lot about that. And so for me, I've always been kind of a little bit of a loner. I've got great relationships, but spent a lot of time alone. And so I'm changing that. Like I'm doing an event here at my house next weekend. And so I think it just makes you reflect. Uh, I am going to Dubai and next month, because there's a, a woman there. She's like 34. And I think she's just like a 10. She's very, is very inconvenient where she lives, but I would marry her like tomorrow. And so if I could find one like that um, and create something and start my own thing, I think it'd be just really great for, for my own development and my business partner. Uh, he's got a kid and he's like juggling so many things and he's amazing. And, you know, I just see the change in him of what it's done for him as a man, as a leader. And I think it's, part of the process. doesn't mean you necessarily have to have kids. You could adopt or do whatever, but I think you need to, you know, to take all of your lessons and pour them into people and process in a way that leaves something back. It's, you know, we, the podcast I have is everything is influence. Teach the four levels of influence, how you influence yourself, one-to-one, one-to-many, and the highest level of influence, how you do it without you, you know, Steve Jobs, dead, but his mission and values are so prevalent. So he's, you know, the company's made more money under Tim Cook than it did with Steve Jobs, but he's the one that could communicate a message and he infused an energy into people and process where now he's the legend. And so you think about what is your legend? What is your legacy? It's about infusing what's inside of you into people and process in a sustainable way where you leave a mark and your main name might not be remembered to the likes of Steve Jobs or something like that, but it's just, it's an energy that you leave behind. And I think that becomes, becomes really, really important. hundred percent. What do you, and you answer this again a little bit, but in these next one to two years, what's next for you specifically? You told me a little bit about it before we started this, but I'd love to hear it more in detail. You know, so we got this influence thing and, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated, not just with sales, but influence in general, because myself, just like you, um, you know, I've worked with a lot of people and helped them with their sales, but a lot of it's the stuff that happens outside of the sales. And I say to people all the time, like, hmm. you can't be this badass salesperson who gets people to do shit and holds them to a higher standard for an hour a day and then be a complete pussy who just does shit and backs down Nothing. and doesn't keep any commitments the other 23 hours of the day. And I'm like, this is like, it just becomes like, once it's like your normal of like holding people to a higher standard and living in this way and doing it for yourself this just becomes 
like it's like momentum that comes into the calls, but this is where you get money and then, you know, provide service, but it's, it's gotta be part of your identity. And so this whole movement of everything is influence where, you know, all I ever did, like I was saying to you before this call, my entire career, I've been on stages and talking. I never spent time in front of Zoom, never spent time on a computer, never sent emails. I hired somebody else to send my emails at the end of the day for me. Like I didn't touch a computer for weeks and now I have to be here. But now that I'm here, I've seen what Cole's done. Um, and inside of Cole's program is like all these spreads. And like, I'm not going to create all the PDFs and all of that, but I can create processes that are more basic, but more powerful in some ways, because they're not so tactical. They're more conceptual and they pull people through experiences where they get to live outside of the PDF, live outside of the training video and pull this into their life, into their being to change how they communicate and influence at mass themselves and others and legacy. And so I, like yourself, have developed salespeople by not focusing just on tactics and questions and phrases and objection handling, but right. creating an energy and an essence. And so what we're doing is creating basically like a sales influence movement. And the next phase of it, we've got a lot of the sales stuff dialed with all the NLP transformation, all that stuff, but going more into stages and doing it big time. But I've, you know, I, I, myself, just like Cole, we, Cole and I buy like every program and it's cool to see companies that are not personal brands but actual companies create recruiting systems and sales and JVs and all of that and creating real businesses. So I've got an event um, with a very, with Alex Hermosi uh, in a few months where he's doing the repitch, I'm doing the pre-pitch. And so it's been cool to see what he's done. Really? Uh, I didn't know this. Yeah. So uh, Tom Bilio, Impact Theory. Yeah. So the last really? day is it's uh, Tom, me, and Alex. What a lineup. Yeah. Wow. So, well, when is this? There, uh, in April. In April, be about 1,200 people um, in, in oh, wow. Arizona. In Arizona. Uh, so, yeah. So, and, and those are two really big names. Everybody knows those names. Like they're the biggest, biggest yeah, it gets. In of course. <laughs> and I'm sandwiched right in between, and nobody knows me. But when they see me do my thing, like it's going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shock, I'm going to shock some people. Well, respect to JB to give you credit too. You did this with Jordan Belfort as well, where you had a stage with him, right? And he went on and then you went on and you kind of took the momentum. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did some things, you know, and he, he told a story at the event that was word for word, a Tony Robbins story. Word for word. I couldn't believe it. And from there, I was kind of like, fuck this guy, hmm. you know? And so... Basically, I, I said some things that only he would have noticed where basically I got all the attention and sales he would have got and subtly put them, I, you know, I leveraged what he did and I created a context around it with frames. And then I got that attention and whatever. And I connected with the audience better and had more fun. And he just, you know, so yeah, we, I, I, was, I was very impressed with the skill that he has. I mean, he is, he is very good. You know, I'm not putting him down in any way. Um, very good, but it, you know, and you hear this a lot too. The the ethics behind what he does and says, little little yeah. out of alignment, and that's you know that's it's that's the consensus from a lot of people. But I'm, he's in the shadow for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, even now it's just in him, but but it's driven him, and he's I mean he's he's yeah. a genius for sure. Sorry not to take you off track though. So you have this event with with Tom and Alex coming up, sandwich in between. Yeah, you know, and so just seeing what Alex has done, I've gone through a lot of his content. We all have at this point, he's a genius with the processes of the business that I have zero clue about. So, you know, looking at maybe getting acquired um, and I've had some conversations there, 
maybe you know selling the company where I'm still part of it, where similar to what Tony and Dean have done. So I've got a lot of work these next few months to get it where I want to create sustainable systems because right now we do we do six figures a month just on autopilot off word of mouth and a few Facebook posts. And so I don't do any marketing, which we're fixing today. I film a, a webinar after this and a VSL that I'm going to send to you for your review. Uh, and then we'll send to Cole as well. And so it's been cool to see what Cole's done, but Cole, Cole would be doing maybe 200 grand a month right now if he didn't do marketing and didn't have a team. Cause I'm kind of like, well, why aren't I doing more? And I'm like, well, I haven't done any marketing. I haven't run any ads and I have no team. And so it's kind of just me and we do well, but based on my positioning, my story, my ability, my speaking, people have kind of pulled me aside that are some of the bigger names in the industry. They're like, man, you could be like really big. And they've been saying this to me for a while. And I'm just kind of like, all right, like, let's do this. And so I hired a guy, pay a guy 20, 20 grand to come to my house and help me create the systems for the webinar. He's taken care of a lot of it. And so we're priming this thing to go big right now. And I think it's a good time for us too, because the economy is tightening um, and people uh, will be more tight with their dollars a bit, but I like a little bit of pressure and I like competition. And so it's good. And just like when I do get to have be on some of these stages, um, I got some other events coming up too. Like some of the people that are coming to my house uh, have their own events and I'm going to Dubai. And there's some really big stages I'll be on there with some of the, the right people. And so I'm building out the marketing and the systems and the team, but very lean, not a big team like Kohl's, but very lean. And now I have a strategy for it. And what we're doing, doing a lot of like JVs and blasting other people's email list, live webinar, selling people a relatively low ticket, like a 2K thing, and then ascending them. And so we're we're just going to go mass scale with it. And there's some pluses and minuses with any model, but I've now chosen one. And now we're just put, plugging in the pieces to get eventually within the next couple of years, it'd be to get acquired, create all of this really optimized systems for people to go through, um, could be a lot of coaches, a little bit different niche than just salespeople, but salespeople love it. Mm -hmm. And some of the, now, the, some of the best sales trainers, not just in the self-development or sales coaching niche, but sales trainers and other niches are going through our stuff. And they're like, this is amazing. I'll do a talk uh, probably next month at Google, um, at Stanford. Um, I got a friend that teaches at Pepperdine. They want to have me speak. So I'll get Ooh. to speak at some of these places and, you know, do some things and it'll be, it'll be good. And so we can take um, what I've done, create more dialed in systems and processes and IP to pull people through that can make them more truly influential. And so that's that's the goal of all of this and have some cool case study videos and testimonials and all of that, but then eventually get the company in place that it's running mostly without me and you know, still be a part of it, but sell sell a part of it, kind of like what Alex Ramosi does. Yeah. Yeah. Where can people like where are you most active where people can follow this journey of what's about to happen? Um the site is being changed like this week, but they can get a free training of mine um, where I go through some of this stuff. It's uh, wildinfluence, W-I-L-D-E, influence.com forward slash go um, or forward slash win. So it'd be two different trainings at those different places. And choose your path. Choose your path. And so eventually it'll all go one place, but we're dialing in the text, but either one of those will work. And so we're directing people there. And then people can kind of get into it because I do really very little on Instagram, uh, very little anywhere these days, but we're changing it all, all in the next month. I need to change all of that. 
because then I'm on the road traveling and speaking and pushing people through process and that's going to be it. I know and we've Facebook, been, Facebook and Facebook. I was about to plug that in for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's some great posts on Facebook as well. He needs to post that everywhere though. That's what I've been telling him, but your team will do that for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've been saying this forever, man, but one day you and me will do something. I'm going to do this account manager journey for a little yeah. while. And then, um, I'm sure there'll be something we can come up with. We already have before, but we'll do much bigger. Yeah. Do some events. I want to do an event here with you and Luke. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And uh, where exactly are you thinking? Miami? Or are we going to do it outside the States? Well, Columbia, I'm down to go there. But, you know, it's got to be a place that people... It's harder, want. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Passports, visa, you know, but not visa, but passports, all of that. But people, people want to come to Florida. People want to come to Miami. That's why I came back um, here. People just want to come here. It's easy to get people to sign up for an event here, hard other places because people don't, it's just not as attractive. Yeah. And you had the COVID restrictions too. So Miami, yeah. Luke and Eli and myself. Um, well, that said, brother, I appreciate you for everything. Appreciate you obviously being a mentor this all these years, but um, also just a really good friend. So I really appreciate value your friendship, man. And um, I'm glad to look forward to see everything you have coming up next. Awesome. Love you, buddy. Appreciate you. 100%, man. Cheers.